and welcome to another Meta Media production of JW on Purpose with your host, JW Nigerian, as he interviews and discusses business, finance, self development, and lifestyle. Hello, everybody. This is JW Nigerian, and we're here today with actress Carol Wells. How are you doing, Carol? Well, I'm terrific. It's a gorgeous day, and I'm so happy to be able to talk with you today. Well, thank you very much. You know, we're excited to talk to you, too. Um, uh, a friend of mine in- just introduced us, and um, I was going over your bio, and she asked me if I would like to speak to you today. And I got excited because you're an actress who's been in uh, many motion pictures. Oh, I think you've done over ten major motion pictures. And going over your resume, you've been in, like, just about every show that I loved when I was a kid. So I was very excited to talk to you today for, for many reasons, um, not just to go over your wonderful career and resume um, and some of the exciting stuff that's happened in your life, but also because you're always, you've always been a philanthropist, you've always believed in giving back, and you, everybody who listens to this show knows that that's what we love to focus on. And so I'd I'd love to sit down with you today and talk about the causes that you promote and uh, the things that you'd like to do. And, of course, the big thing is you've just come out with this uh, wonderful children's book, and I wanted to sit down with you today and talk about the book. So uh, we have a full uh, schedule ahead of us here. Yes, I think we're going to have to do this more than one time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we could probably go... Well, you were you've been in wonder you know all these wonderful shows, and we were talking earlier, and I said you we could probably do two hours on National Velvet alone, right? <laughs> probably, but but realistically, you know, all of those were wonderful things to do, and I must say that this really makes me seem old. I was on television when it was first black and white, sure. and I did a show where I was Juliet and Romeo and Juliet the day that NBC took all of their shows color. So that was like a milestone. And from then on, all their shows were in color. So when you see some of these original shows that I did, like the Mavericks and all of those, you know, the ones that were popular at that time in the late 50s or 60s, they were in black and white until we switched over. Let's go over a couple of them. I just want to name a few of them that are... Um, that excite me because there, there's been so many. Um, one of them, Leave you know, it to you've Beaver. Been, what's that? Did you watch Leave It to Beaver? I was a big Leave It to Beaver fan, absolutely. And Dobie Gillis. Do, Dobie Gillis, because we had um, what's the guy's name who played? Uh, uh, actually, it was it was Dobie Gillis, and you also were on this, uh, a talk. Uh, wait, a game show with him. Is it Dwayne Hickman? No, the other guy, the play, one who played Gilligan, Bob Denver. Oh, Bob Denver, right. Yeah, because you also did uh, Password with Bob, did you not? Yes, I did. I mean, you know what happens is after you do so many things, I even forget what I've done when I go back and check out something for IDBM, and I'll go, oh, I forgot I did Laramie or Rawhide or Dr. Silver, <laughs> you know? Oh, Absolutely. When I was little, you know, I was just 16, when I was right doing National Velvet, next door to me on the MGM lawn 
they were filming Mutiny on the Bounty with Marlon Brando. Mm -hmm. So I would go over there and watch some of the scenes when I wasn't um, filming. Right. That was so exciting because, you know, he was just major, major star. Right. And to see the, they took this huge soundstage and made it into a ship, and they would actually rock the ship back and forth with that creaky sound and everything. It was so <laughs> exciting. And then I had Plant Eastwood, and um, I can't remember the name of the second fellow that played it, right on the other side of me, and Dick Chamberlain was on the other studio next to me. So we all got to see each other and, and be together, and it was really that was the most exciting part for me was at lunchtime to see who was what big movie star I would be sitting next to lunch. <laughs> well, let's just kind of talk about because you were in the heyday of Hollywood. You know, um, I mean, not, you know, uh, part of the you know, you were you were young and blonde and beautiful, and you always played. And one of the parts that I, I, I was watching, I went and watched Donna Reed with you in it when you played. You kind of played. Uh, you usually played the nice girl, the girl that every boy wanted. You were gorgeous, and in this particular, those you did two episodes on Donna Reed where you played the not so nice girl that that the no <laughs> the stuck up girl who thought everything was divine. Well, you know what? It was interesting because I was up for that part to play Donna Reed's daughter, and oh, Kelly okay. that great. Right. But I was one of the last three girls. And you know why they didn't give it to me? No. You know, we had to dye our hair red, and we did some tests, and they said that I looked too much like Deborah Carr. Oh, no. Which I had never thought of, but with my hair red and bangs, I guess I did. So they were really sweet to always hire me when they could, but... Um, I thought it was a nice show. I've, I've always loved Shelley Fabray. I think she's wonderful... Now a wonderful lady. You know, she's mm -hmm. got to be great, where some of the people that I worked with didn't turn out so well. Oh, no, no. Let's, let's talk about that. How do, you know, every, at that time, um, everybody, and including today, you know, in L.A., if, you're go, if you live in Los Angeles, everybody, every woman or guy who works in a restaurant is probably trying to be an actor or get in the business somehow. Well, how did you start in the business? You went to Hollywood High, I'm guessing? You well, grew up out here? That didn't start my career. Yes, I did go to Hollywood High. I was definitely... I ran away from home because my mother and father had me in a private school um, called Campbell Hall in the Valley. Mm -hmm. And then they wanted me to go to um, Marlboro, which was a private girls' school. And... I didn't want to because I knew that if I went to Marlboro, I couldn't be an actress because I had started working when I was 12 years old. And I got my start by being in a little theater production where they discovered Debbie Reynolds in Burbank. Mm -hmm. And my neighbor, this is kind of interesting for your people to listen to because I had a severe handicap. I couldn't see. And being one of six children, you know, they say that cobbler's children don't have shoes. Well, right. I was a doctor, and I was the fourth child, kind of in between with the girls. And they just kind of, you know, I was a me too, me too. So when my sister went to get her eyes examined, I got up on the chair and said, me too, I can't see. 
But they didn't believe me, and they kind of patted my head and, you know, got me off the chair. Right. Well, I almost flunked sixth grade, and that's really tragic because I couldn't see. So I had to... I had to see the board, and I didn't know if the letter, I mean, the number was a 9 or a 4, mm-hmm. or if it was an 8 or a 6 or a 1 or a 7. And, you know, in math, you have to be precise. So I right. flunked math because I was just assuming what the numbers were. And then I'd get up and read out loud, and I had to memorize all the three- and two-letter words. You know, and it, but for, you know, I used to be able to say them all. And when I would read out loud, I would think what would sound best and put something in because I couldn't see. Well, you know, if you, you know, a lot of younger listeners would go, oh, th- that's crazy. Why didn't they just test her for her sight? But a lot of people, a lot of younger people won't re- wouldn't realize that in those days, uh, you could get you could get all the way through sixth, seventh grade before they realized that you couldn't see because they didn't have the test in school. Well, this is what saved me, actually. You just actually had Exactly what happened is that since I failed, like, the major subjects, not the ones like history that I could study at home and things like that, but the ones that required me really having to see and be precise in front of everyone, they realized and gave me an eye test and found out I wasn't an idiot. I just was blind. Then I got glasses, and then they put me in Campbell Hall to catch up because there were only, like, eight people in my grade. And so Mm -hmm. they could give me more special attention. And the neighbor was an actress, the Rune Tuttle, who lived right up the street from me. My mother asked her if she could give me lessons to learn how to read. So she was making a television show called... Life with Father, which was a live TV show every Sunday. Right. And she had me come every Saturday and read the script that she was studying all the other parts and cue her so she would know where her part came in. And by doing that weekly, it helped me learn to read. Oh, wonderful. So then she got me an agent. She saw me come do the, you know, the play. And mm-hmm. every and that I had a children's agent, and I just worked all the time. Half the reason why I worked during my teenage years is because I didn't have pimples. Ah. You know how other children got a lot of bad acne? Right. And I think I was very blessed because I had good skin, (laughs) so they kept hiring me. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. I know. Because you'd never think that that would be the reason why you'd continually get picked up on these shows. You would think, I would ask you, uh, were you the go-to girl because of the fact that maybe you did your lines really well or you always made your mark or, you know, the one take, were you a one-take queen kind of person? Well, actually, maybe it was because of acne? That, that was something that I did pride myself in. Okay. They did call me one-take Carol. Oh, and I was and I worked with Groucho Marx on the, um, I think it was called the Bob Hope Chrysler Theater. Right. You know, because when you had, like, live TV, but it was kinescoped or videoed, and so you, you couldn't stop. It was just like doing a, you know, theater Play performance. Or... Right. And Groucho and I had the most wonderful comedic scene. And it went on and on, and the camera followed us from the front porch all the way through the house, and we did it in one take without stopping. 
and it was delicious. The feeling when you're working with somebody that great, Groucho Marx's timing was impeccable, and he would give me the incentive to play back with him, and we both just loved it and hugged each other after the show, and I thanked him so much, and he thanked me so much. So that was very rewarding. Well, that, that, that begs the question. Um, just like when you play tennis and you're playing with a better, uh, good player, you tend to get it over the net more. Uh, when you're acting and you have somebody, when you're acting against somebody who's a really good actor, does it make you better? Yes. Oh, I think everything in life is that way. When you're around mm-hmm. somebody that has the edge of perfection, it constantly pushes me to do the better, you know, do better each time. In everything, in every right. in everyone's life, you know. When they say sometimes people say you bring out the best in me, I think that's the most beautiful quality that we could give each other as a gift. Wow. Okay, so you were a beautiful blonde in Hollywood. You were a teenager for a lot of your career, but uh, you so. I mean, you had to keep up with the school and all that, but you you started to grow up, and you were around, you know, the Jane Garners of the time you know, when you did, uh, you know, I mean, you were around some, all the hunks and the Hollywood hunks and all the you actors that, that, you, did know you have to grow up fast? It was amazing. I've got to tell you a couple of things that just popped in my mind. Mm-hmm. One thing was when I was sitting across at lunchtime with some other people with Rock Hudson, and, you know, even being just 14, 15, 16, when you're with a man, and like you said, Jimmy Garner, and that kind of guy that was a real man, mm-hmm. he was going to give you a little, they didn't flirt with me because I was young. They were very respectful. Wonderful. But you can feel there's a little edge that a man gives a woman that's just kind of a little, I think you're cool kind of look, you know, or... <laughs> It's a sparkle in your eye that you pick up and you know that you're appreciated mm-hmm. without them going over the line. I sat there with Rock Hudson, and I swear to God, it was like being with a rock, just a stone. There was no recognition of me as a pretty girl or something. And mm-hmm. I just thought maybe he was nearsighted. I had no <laughs> idea he was gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It was always kind of a, a strange feeling to me. Is why did I never connect in his eyes? You know, I didn't get that kind of sparkle that the people usually give you back and forth. Right. So that was interesting. But the other part is, is that, yes, I was with um, Robert Stack and his wife. I was with Dean Martin and, and Frank Sinatra and all of these people that were so bigger than life. Mm-hmm. I never realized that they were so much older than I was. I I was shocked when I went to some of the funerals that we've gone through in the last five years that these men were all in their 80s and 90s. I had no idea that they were so much older than I was. I just thought they, you know, were like 25 because when you're 16, 25 looks old, you know. It was interesting well, that most of my friends, like Jane Meadows, who was married mm-hmm. to Steve Allen, told me the other day that, Carol, darling, you could be my daughter I never had. <laughs> and Henry Mancini and Jenny Mancini and I hung out all the time. They could uh-huh. have been my parents. They were old enough to be my mother and father, but I never saw them that way. 
We were all. Well, do you think you had to grow up faster than most kids? Because I noticed that a lot of kid stars tend to be mature beyond their years. Maybe I guess maybe because of all the responsibility that they have on their shoulders. You can't be playful, and you can't make mistakes when you're working with real professionals. Right. And in one way, yes, it, you had to be grown up. You had to be responsible. You know, you can't be late. You, you just can't be like a kid. Oh, Mom, I'm sorry I was late coming home. You know, I stopped at the drugstore. You know, you couldn't, no excuses were allowed. Right. You had to do what they said. But, you see, for me, it was a great escapism. I loved working. I didn't have to wash dishes at the house or, you know, be with the other six children who were always picking on me. It was, right. to me, my, my, I loved to be working. But then okay. I saw the little boy on my show, and some of the younger children, especially the boys, wanted to go out and play baseball, and they wanted to just be boys. And it broke my heart when... The mothers would crack down on the kids or the, and say, you know, when you get home, you're going to be whipped if you don't do the scene right or shape up. And it just broke well, my that, that, has, that brings up another question to me because speaking of the fact that you're on the Donna Reed show, um, Shelly Fabre's uh, brother was played by Paul, and I can't think of his last name. Oh, yes. Wait a minute. I'll bring it up. He was such a nice young man. A wonderful, a wonderful guy, still a nice guy, but he also, when he got older, he became a, an incredible advocate for ch children's stars and actually wanted to try to ban kids from doing roles at one point because he thought that it was just very destructive for children. Um, and I don't get that inkling from you that you feel that way. Well, see, I was lucky. Um, I had a real, I had a real kind of old fashioned home. My mother stayed at home and worked and stayed with the children. My father was a doctor and went to work. I didn't realize until reading some of my girlfriends have written books. And one that was the most recently was Carrie White, who is mm -hmm. a famous character who I knew from Hollywood High. I had no idea the horrible place that she was going through. You know, her mother was an alcoholic, didn't know where her mm -hmm. father was. You know, half the time in the gang, half the time she ended up just horribly on dope. And now she's mm. pulled herself out and she's, you know, really doing wonderful things for young women that are having problems. But I'm reading these different people, my peers, and some of their background, and I realized I was much more sheltered than most people. My mother stayed with me. We enjoyed each other's company. She was one of my best friends. Mm. And like I said, I didn't have to go back home and be with so many brothers and sisters that were just always, you know, kids are. They pick on each other, and there's always these undertones and currents of things. And my escapism was going to work because I could focus on just my work and what I loved the best. Yes, and you can tell you loved your work because you, you not only did you sing, but you also danced. I did, and I... I should have kept my singing, I should have been more serious about my singing. It came so easily that my teacher got frustrated half the time with me and said, you just don't realize what a gift this is from God and, and you're not, you know, you're not paying attention to what God's given you. And right. I think that's 
I could have gone on and been, you know, an opera singer and, and been a singing diva. But frankly, mm-hmm. it wasn't that much fun. Light, light opera and musical comedies were so much more fun to do. The people were more fun to be around. You know, the opera world was so serious. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't know if that's... Uh, the opera world is probably more of a... Um, uh, a killer of of the dream. Not, I don't know if you would have gone. As, you could go as far, or be as famous, or do the things that you did. If you would have gone that well, path. I, I figured, like you say, it. You know, it was already my niche was television, and it was easy for me because I enjoyed it. I didn't have to leave home. I could stay here in, in Los Angeles and work. When I did go on tours and when I did do musicals around the country and in other countries, after being there for the opening night or the second night and you're meeting all the heads of state and all the, you know, people that were invited to the opening, after that it was very lonesome because you worked at night and then in the daytime you'd sleep until noon. And what did you do? Just kind of went around looking at the sites. Well, there's not too much in some of these Midwest places. So you traveled a lot, and 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 you, the only reason you knew you were in the city is because maybe you saw a building that you, a tall building that you knew, like you see the Empire yeah. State Building. Oh, it must be in New York. <laughs> well, New York is the exception. I had so much fun in New York. Every time I went, I never slept. Oh, New York God. is where you just stay up and go every show you can. And if I wasn't right. working. I would go to something, and then the best part about New York, I don't know if it's still there, the same kind of feeling, but you, know, you would go to like three or four different places after the shows, and you saw everybody. And it was just, um, I'll tell you a little joke on myself, what a square I was. I mean, really, I never grew up with drugs or alcohol, mm-hmm. and I never smoked because my father, being a doctor, I think that, you know, he would have probably broken my leg if I had brought a cigarette home. (laughs) Really, you know, and they didn't have alcohol. Daddy had scotch, and now and then when he was really tired, he'd say he's going to have his medicine. (laughs) Uh Well, we didn't grow up drinking, so when I was at Studio 54, I knew Edie Sedgwick, and she was kind of the muse for Andy Warhol, and Mm -hmm. they were there all the time. And when I was, uh, you know, just a young 20s, in my early 20s, and Larry and I would go to all these wonderful nightclubs they had there, and I'd hang out with them. I had no idea they were taking cocaine and heroin. That was just out of my scope. I thought they oh, were just... So you never went down to the downstairs rooms and all the craziness? You know what? I, I didn't. I didn't know... That that was the drug scene. I thought they were just drinking and were drunk. Right. It just didn't even go into my my mind that that's what was going on because I wasn't ever exposed to it. Well, it's good that they respected. They they knew that who you were, and respected that because uh, you know misery loves company, and usually you know the drug crowd loves to grab people and suck them in, right? I guess so, um, but I didn't get that at all the only time (laughs) there were two times in the 80s that i was a little bit shocked was one time um you know this is when rod stewart and alana hamilton were married and Mm -hmm. he went through their drug scene and i I think he's all perfect now and cleaned up but he was heavy 
cocaine scene. And we were all at the Daisy, and I guess he'd gone to the bathroom and done it because he came out and he had white on his face. <laughs> he wanted me to go with him to an after-hours party, and I didn't go because I didn't want to be around people that could be arrested for dope. Well, that's, you know, that's refreshing because you, you, um, even the one who played Opie on Mayberry, I think his mother said he had uh, a week of rebellion where he, you know, he wore bell bottoms and a thing in his hair, a flower in his hair and decided he was going to be a hippie for a week, but then it was over. <laughs> well, you know, this is another thing. LSD came out when mm-hmm. I was still in high school and I was working and I was just appearing on all these different television shows, you know, and my picture was on the front of different magazines and I I felt really happy with my life. And also you have to remember I was a concert pianist and a singer, and I went to church every Tuesday night for choir, and we were there every Sunday. And I didn't have a lot of time because I had to practice my piano for an hour to an hour and a half before school. Uh Then I'd come home and I had to practice another hour, and then I had to do my homework. And if we had any time out, my dad, being a you know officer in the army during the war, with six children, we all had schedules. We either had to pull weeds if we had an hour free. <laughs> I mean, we were never. We were allowed to go and ride our horses, but you only could do that after you did your errands and after you did your, I mean, not errands, your jobs, you know, around the house. And he mm-hmm. had schedules. Every one of us, it was like clockwork. One was playing the piano while the other one was doing homework. You know. One was playing the clarinet while the other one was out pulling weeds. You know, I think he had them all, all regimentized. So I didn't get a lot of free time to hang out. Yeah, well, it sounds like you had, you know, you had a really great foundation and you had uh, parents who kept you busy and, and, and loved you and showed you support. So you didn't, you didn't number one, you didn't have time to veer off. Number two, no reason to. And they were very strict. You had to be home at a certain time. We could mm-hmm. go out and ride our horses, but if you weren't in the house before dark, you'd get a whipping. And my dad was big on whippings. I, I would probably tell people now that if my childhood was raised now, they'd say it was child abuse. <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let me ask you a few more questions about the, your your um, background in in. Uh, film and TV, and then I want to move on to uh, the, the philanthropic stuff that we I want to talk about with you, um, because that's an important part of the story here, and some, some exciting stuff with the Red Army and, and a couple of things. But I want to ask you first, uh, you've been on shows like Ben Casey, and you were on Perry Mason, um, and uh, let me ask you really quickly, on Perry Mason, it was reported that, you know, that uh, that he was also gay and that he was very, uh, pretty open about it, unlike Rock, when, who you had mentioned before. Did you did you see any of that, or you were just, you know, I think you were on only one episode, so you may not have even. No, actually, I was on like five or six shows with his. Oh, I apologize. I did it uh, when he first started, and then he came back and did Ironside. Oh. That was not- couple more. But to answer your question, no. You know, I, I don't think I had my radar up for that either. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wasn't aware that people were gay or not gay. You know what I mean? I didn't really 
have that in my brain until I was older. Right. Um, I was surprised when I read that. Um, I had gone to see his home in, I think it was Bora Bora or Fiji, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful place. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure that he could, you know, do whatever he wanted to do there without a lot of public scrutiny. Right. But no, I, I didn't know that before when I was younger. But like I say, I was I had tunnel vision. I was so square. I don't know. I must have been boring. <laughs> if I had had smoked marijuana and gotten more with the in crowd, you know, I probably would have been a much bigger star. Oh, this was the point I was going to make when this guy wanted oh, to sure. give me LSD. I had all this square background, and when he wanted to give me LSD, he kept saying to me, oh, this is going to change your life. You're going to love it. It's going to change your life. And I thought, why do I want my life changed? I love my body. (laughs) (laughs) And so I never took it. But it was interesting because the kids that did jumped off buildings. Art Linkletter's son died by jumping off a building. Max Stein, who wrote Gone with the Wind music, was my first husband, Larry Doheen, his roommate. He jumped out of a window taking LSD. It was just criminal what happened. Yeah. Well, it's it's because this is going to segue us into um, your work in uh, philanthropy um, because of children and what you want to do for them. But let me ask you really quick because you've done uh, over ten movies. One of the ones you're best known for, um, even though I, one of my favorites is Absent-Minded Professor, but uh, one of the famous ones you're famous for is Funny Lady. Yes, I had a very glamorous role on that. I loved it. Yes. I had a much bigger part in it, too. Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. cut me up three times. Three times she went back into the cutting room and cut me down, cut me down. She uh-huh. even cut up Ben Vereen, who had just won the Tony Award for Pippin, and she cut a whole dance number out that he and I did together, singing and dancing. And it was all the Barbara Streisand show, which is too bad because, it was a good script, and it was a very balanced script, but by the time mm-hmm. she finished it, it was all her show. James James Kahn makes a funny joke. If I had known the back of my head was going to be in the movie so much, I would have powdered it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> that's funny. Oh, that's great. Um, so um, did you enjoy doing the movie, though? Oh, I loved every minute of it. Are you, you played kidding the dancers, me? Right? Correct. I played the the girlfriend of the backer, who had to give me a part because I was his girlfriend. So right. you know, I was one of the I was like the second lead in this Broadway show, and I was the showgirl. And they had me in these Bob Mackie Ray Agion gowns that just right. made me you know sensational. And sequins and plumes and and they gave me my own dressing room and so I could sit in there like a lady of leisure until they needed me and I was treated like a queen and everyone hated Barbara Streisand because she was so mean to everyone oh. but I did I didn't even meet her until like you know two thirds through the film and I just kept to myself because I figured you know I'm not going to gush over somebody that's being so rude to everyone. But then we started working together. She actually was quite interested in my life because it was different from her life, and and we had Mm -hmm. some wonderful conversations. I I found her to be really amazing. She was like 
several people in one. She was always very kind to me, and she could open up her mouth and calm any savage beast. Her voice, Mm -hmm. that voice. So why didn't you just thank God and be gracious about it? She had such a beautiful talent. And she Mm -hmm. was a perfectionist. You know, people hated her because she demanded perfection, and I never never minded that. It was just rude to everyone. (laughs) I've seen a lot of movie stars and worked with big stars, like you said, when I was younger. So I was lucky to be with the real pros, and the real pros never were rude to people. Glenn Ford, Debbie Reynolds, you talked about people that were real troopers, that they were kind to people all the time. Robert Stack, all of the all of the big ones, nobody ever was rude to anyone. They were very kind, and that's why the sets were always harmonious, you know? It's funny, I was talking to my wife about this the other day. You know, I do a lot of uh, celebrity interviews. And we're taught by television and by movies that every time you're going to meet a big star, they're going to be pompous and arrogant and and belittling and all that kind of stuff. And where's my water? Give me my water or, you know, pee on you. (laughs) And the truth is that they're all, I mean, most of them I've met, you know, I'm sure I could name a couple. But but most of them, 99%, are just sweet, wonderful, normal people who, you know, who care about a lot of stuff. And, you know, I mean, they're just, they're normal people that have normal lives. And, you know, they care about their kids and they care about their lives and they care about their foundations. And they're good people. It's true. Um, the other person that I just really thought was obnoxious working with was her name, um, had that big, loud voice. The one that Barbara Streisand reminded me of, I'll think of her minute, like a scare face. But she was a Broadway star, and I think, and because Barbara was on a Broadway star, I think she learned from this woman. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I am having a blonde moment. Who is a blonde moment. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to say it the other way. <laughs> Navy for a minute. I want all my Navy guys and girls out there to know I love them so much and admire all the armed forces. But I was, um, I was missing out when I, they called it Miss Midshipman when right. uh, I was doing National Velvet. They voted me the girls that they most likely wanted to date. And so oh, wonderful. The, the top of the class, I can't remember, if, I think it was in 1961, his, the top cadet got me through, the, I guess, the MGM department from Annapolis, you know, they call. And I went there to be his date for the weekend when he graduated. And guess who was performing? This, who? This beautiful blonde singer who, um, Mr. Billy, who, um, I just lost her name in she was like one of the sexiest women and she sang this breathy kind of voice. I just saw her face and was going to tell you the name, but I'll think of it in a minute. Okay. I haven't gone back in my memory banks like this in so long. It's funny. Uh, well, I'm glad you're doing it with me because this is fun for me. Julie. Julie, um, what was her name? And she sang with this smoky voice. And, oh, my God, everybody, it was the most wonderful thing. Anyway, I love the Navy. I love all of our troops. I was fortunate to go on the USS Ronald Reagan for a week. Yes, talk um, about that. Pearl Harbor down to San Diego. Yeah, that's. I mean, that was a full cruise you did. 
it was it was so educational and it made me feel so proud. I swear, if there was ever an attack on America, I want to be on that aircraft carrier. Because <laughs> this was the same time when they were lobbing these, you know, rockets out of Korea. Mm-hmm. And here, you know, we were sitting on on all this, um, you know, nuclear power that could have wiped North Korea off the map if we'd wanted to. I mean, it was just an amazing experience. But the people, from the top captain, from the um, admiral of the Seventh Fleet, who was also on board, mm-hmm. and they had all gone to Annapolis, so it didn't hurt, you know, because they all thought it was terrific. I was there. And they treated me like, I felt like when I got off that ship that I was Meryl Monroe and Mrs. Ronald Reagan. The way they <laughs> treated me. It was so good for my ego because, well, that's another story. But anyway... Children, and I think of them as children because some of these kids were just like 17 and 18 when they signed up. Sure. I wanted, since I was in the officers' quarters, I wanted to go down and interview some of the girls that were in the um, regular enlisted quarters. And it broke my heart when I walked in and I saw how how dark it was and how crowded, you know, these racks were one on top of the other, three at a time, and how small the facilities were to take showers, and everyone had to share an iron if their uniform was not in shape. And I gasped, and I actually started to choke up and cry because I was so shocked. And I said to this one girl who looks like a young Elizabeth Taylor, she was so beautiful, and blue eyes, dark hair, tan, very petite girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most beautiful creatures I've ever looked at. And I said, does it scare you being in here at night? You know, do you, how do you feel being in here? And she said, my father left us when I was nine, and my mother left me on the street when I was 11. I love it here. I can close up my rack, and no one will disturb me or hurt me when I'm sleeping. Mm-hmm. Oh, Isn't it heartbreaking? Wow. That's well, you, you, I was in the Navy myself and, and was in similar circumstances. I remember being in, there's 80 of us in our company when I went to boot camp, and I would say about 80% of my company were were uh, blacks from Chicago, and they were getting in the service to stay out of jail a lot of times. Uh, these were some rough guys. And... Um, but they, it was so wild to see because I came from a better uh, upbringing, uh, you know, a, a nicer upbringing, I should say, not better necessarily, but a nicer kind of, you know, quiet uh, middle-class upbringing. And to see these guys, you know, I didn't care for the small racks and everything. You're only, you had to do watches four hours on, four hours off, so after a while you forgot about it. You just, you know, you were in a blur all the time. But mm-hmm. when these guys came down there and saw that they got their own space, and this was like them walking into a castle. It was like crazy. I, I couldn't understand it because, this, you know, they had lived in some pretty nasty places. And I, th- I just didn't, I had no idea where they were coming from. So I totally understand what you're talking about. This is, this is where, I mean, even now I feel like crying. I'm, I'm feeling this feeling because if that was so good for them, you know, you think, well, God, what did they grow up with? And this is what inspired me to write my book, Amberilla, that we just come out with, is mm-hmm. 
I, I resent so much child abuse, and one out of every four little girls is going to be molested in America, and one out of every six little boys. And mm-hmm. how dare, how dare this still go on? And, you know, it, it's so unfair. They can't fight back. It's like it's like beating a dog. You know, you can't fight back. So why are these people allowing drug trafficking coming in and bringing human traffic in and just for the sexual release of these degenerate men that have to hurt these little children. So part of my book, is reason to write it, was to give young people some tools to help them understand that they do have adult problems. They do have problems that are hoisted upon them that they're too young to have to deal with. But mm-hmm. how do they deal with them and how to gain your own confidence and and learn some of the metaphysical laws that if you apply them, they do help protect you. Mm-hmm. And I think that more people need to talk about this. You know, incest is something that nobody wants to hear. I get, I've submitted my to three people, all being men, and... They didn't want to read it. They didn't. Once they got to the point where the father was beating up the little girl, and I, I had to make it much softer in my final edition. Right, um, sure. But I left it still in because my main reason is, is that fathers and uncles and stepfathers and neighbors are abusing children all the time and not. It's under the radar, and no one wants to talk about it. It should be exposed. And people that do that should be put in jail and kept away from children. And that was my main concern. I've always been concerned about the safety and welfare of children. Well, let me ask you, because you had uh, such a, you know, you had a childhood that was pretty sheltered. Um, Do you believe that, uh, that kids should be told? that they need to be educated about these things? Absolutely. Absolutely. I tried to do that um, with my grandchildren, and my daughter-in-law is Catholic. And I noticed growing up, and also when not growing up as a child, my children growing up, because they went to Catholic high schools, that their mothers never talked to the daughters about how to protect themselves, how to keep themselves clean, how to protect yourself from getting pregnant. In their mm-hmm. minds, their daughters were virgins because they wanted them to be. But I could see some of these little Catholic girls were going out with my Catholic boys, and I could see that they were sneaking in the bedroom when things were happening. Right. And so I had to tell one of my son's girlfriends to go speak to her mother and go to a gynecologist and find out everything to protect herself. And she said, oh, I can't tell my mother. I couldn't tell my mother. I said, well, if you don't, I will. Because I knew that a little Catholic girl getting pregnant with my son, who was like a senior in high school, they would have been a shotgun wedding, you know. It would have been a a big scandal. So I forced her to go tell her parents. And I always resented my age girlfriends that had children not educating their children on the most basic things to prevent someone getting AIDS and getting, you know, pregnant. 
And that's just through ignorance. That's why they're still in Africa raping little children, thinking that that's going to save them from getting AIDS when they're just spreading it. Mm-hmm. It's all education. We know that. Right. Well, you, you were on the Dinah Shore show, and she was a big advocate of all of this. Were you guys friends? No, we weren't friends, but we were acquaintances. I mm-hmm. actually was on a few times, and I thought she was quite uh, wonderful. Um, I was good friends with Debbie Reynolds. You know, okay. he would all the time and everything, and I thought she was quite a remarkable woman. But Dinah Shore and I never were really good friends. Mm-hmm. Always admired her, though. Didn't she start the first women's golf tournament? Something, yeah, something like that. She was I mean, big. she was just very big on women's rights and educating women on, on, on their own sexuality. And, you know, yeah. um, just really wanted to stop the ignorance. And that's so important. I was in Vietnam, and the children, the women were treated just like dirt in Vietnam. Right. And if they were pregnant, they were still carrying pounds of food out to the men sitting at the table waiting to be fed. And right. this one little girl was so pregnant and so in pain. She was just about to have her baby. And they were making her carry all this stuff. I just said no. And I told her, and I took her by the hand. She was so frightened. I made her go lay down, and I carried the food out. Well, they were so embarrassed because I was the guest of honor. Mm -hmm. And I humiliated the men. I said, how can you sit there and let this poor child, she was just 16 years old, about to have a baby carrying all these heavy things of food. What are you thinking? And I figured if I stayed there longer, they'd probably tired and feathered me. Because I'm um, let's segue for a second because I do want I want to really get into this, but I, this might be a good time to talk about you getting uh, picked up by the Red Army. What the heck was that all about? Well, this is really amazing. I was going around the world and I was singing to the different heads of state, and um, I, in planning this trip, I never wanted to go to India. India has never interested me. For some reason, I think after going to Egypt and seeing how poor people were, it just breaks my heart. Right. And you see such poverty and, and unable to really make a change. And I just really didn't ever want to go there. So I made it very clear I did not want to go to India. Mm-hmm. Well, I learned the difference between a non-stop, it's called a direct flight or non-stop. A direct flight doesn't mean it's non-stop. It will stop and pick up, pick up fuel and maybe quickly passengers, a quick turnaround. Right. Well, we stopped and we just left Egypt and we stopped in, in um, India to refuel on our way over to Bangkok. Mm-hmm. And within 30 minutes after we took off again, we were you know, started being yelled at and people were in those red and white check things they wear on their heads, you know, like the Arabs do. And they all started, you know, yelling at us. And I think English was like their third language. They spoke Japanese and then Arabic, but they'd all been trained by the PLO. Yafa Arafat received the Nobel Peace Prize after he had blown up about, you know, 20 airplanes and hijacked people. I couldn't believe they gave that to him. Mm-hmm. He was the one in, behind that whole thing in the 70s of hijacking airplanes. 
Right. Anyway, so they just started yelling, sit, sit, sit. And then they would yell, passport, passport. So when the people would start to get up to get their passports, then they'd pistol whip them and they'd drop right down on the floor. Oh, it my was God. Very, very frightening. They kept us. <laughs> you know how you. <laughs> you know, funny things go through your head. I could see myself. I, I've just been on this tour. Funny lady had just come out. You know, I was feeling like a movie star. Right. And I had a vision of four Americans died in India. And that would be about the only thing they said up back on the 26th page or something. Right. <laughs> and I didn't realize when we got back home how every newspaper had covered it for the entire five, six days, I was on the headlines of every newspaper around the world, my picture. But I had no idea because you're so isolated. I just was praying that somebody would, would save us. I mean, it was horrible. We almost got hit by a jet plane leaving Bangladesh. We were running out of fuel, so they made us land quickly in Bangladesh. And then we sat on the tarmac for days in 130 degrees temperature. It was just awful. Oh, my God, that's a movie in its own. I know. I know. I've written half of the book, but I also had some very um, emotional problems for about three months about it, you know, that it just kept coming back to fear. So I just set that aside and decided I'd write it later. Now I'm fine with it. But when things like that first happen and you think you're never going to see your children again and you're never going to have a chance to hug them and love them. At that point, I just had two little boys. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was the most frightening thing I think a person could go through unless maybe their child was sitting there and having their skin stripped off their bodies. Yeah. That would probably be, a, I, I think that would be the worst thing to do is watch your child suffer, but it was, it was horrific. And, it, you know, it changed me from a very loving, pacifistic type of person. You know, I always thought, well, there's some way you can save somebody. Don't have, you know, people be put to jail and death, death warrant, death penalty. But after that experience, my thought was shoot them and hang them in the airports and let everybody see these terrorists, how horrible they are, because they reduce you down to nothing. Well, you know, it's funny because hopefully many of us get the experience not as in brutal a way as you did, but one of the the biggest turns that can happen to a person is when they realize how powerless they can be if 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 they're in the right situation. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's what when they know that they can take your power away from you and you no longer have any recourse of fighting back, that is the worst thing you can do to a human being, and especially an American who's mm-hmm. used to free and used to being able to have an alternative. When somebody would say to me, no, I wouldn't give up, I'd think, okay, that's no that way. Let's try another way. I and kind of think this- that most more people should should not, like, again, not as brutal as you had to deal with it, but more people need to deal with that understanding and feel that, feel that happen to them because I feel that too often nowadays that we are so desensitized to things that we would easily vote away any of our freedoms for, for more comfort. Well, I do agree with that one to 
part of it, but I certainly don't agree. I would hate anyone to have to go through what I went through. Yeah, dissect it. Again, like I said, not as brutally as you had to go that through. Is, I think that would be awful. And you know what it did? It's just, it just made me, because I was so scared, mm-hmm. and, you know, you're shaking. You're, my, my body went into shock, and, you know, you, I had to keep my hands above my head like you see in those Japanese prison camps. It either had to be folded above my head or my arms up. And mm-hmm. for two days, you know, we couldn't do anything. They wouldn't give us food or water or anything. It was just, when, when they put that gun in my mouth, they had, oh, hand grenades, they had hand grenades in their hands. They had the whole plane um, loaded up with plastic explosives, explosives. And then they all had guns. And when they put that gun in my mouth, I'll tell you, you... It does something to you. You just realize you never want to be in that position again. No. And it's true. We need to fight harder for our freedoms and not be so lazy about it. Our, that's what I love about all of our boys and women in the uh, arm. I should say men and women, not boys, um, in the armed forces. Mm-hmm. They they have to go through these challenges all the time just so we can have the comfort of, you know, being able to go on a Saturday night and pay money to go see a movie and go out to drinks with our friends. And in the meantime, and I had traveled. I had been to Damascus. I'd been to Syria. It's just shocking to me how they can keep getting away with this massacre. Yes. That they're going through now. And in, in Africa, I was in Africa, and I... I think I was one of the luckiest people to get out of there. I never would go back now with what they're doing to people. The white people are just being slaughtered. Mm-hmm. They're killing each other. And it's like, for what? What is it that's making them all so crazy? Yeah, one of the problems with, uh, I think, you know, the, the, the you know humanity in general, and I, and, and I'm, and I'm, I don't want to, you know, slap, uh, paint it with a, a really dark brush, but we just have, you know, some <laughs> laws we seem to live by, and that is when uh, one person is in peril, uh, it's, it's we all come together to help. But when 100,000 people are in peril, it's just a statistic, and we, we, we don't get it. Does that make sense well, to you? Even, even my own husband, who's the old guard, he's in the 80s, and he doesn't think the way young people think. He thinks the way older people, you know, thought World War mm-hmm. Two kind of thing. And he says it's nature's way of calling. Of what? It's nature's way of calling. In what other words, that? you know, when you are when you have a herd of cows, say, they take mm-hmm. out wheat cows. They oh, right, 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 right. Kill them and use them for other things because they know it's going to be a wheat cow. Or they do it with horses, too. You know, they'll take out part of the herd that's not going to survive. And, right, and, and I understand why you said old guard, because many younger people would just be really offended by that remark. What? But you have I to realize people that were brought up on farms and, and in the country in the old days, uh, they had to be a little more realistic about those kind of things. Yeah, and they see it as part of life. They just see right. it as, you know, you live, you die, sometimes you live longer. And my mm-hmm. husband has this just this very same attitude because he grew up on a ranch and everything. And to him, sometimes those things have to happen. So we're getting too many people on the earth. 
to me is just too simplistic. I I see the babies, the suffering, the mothers holding the children. I see the fathers getting, you know, maimed and killed. So it's very, very important to me. And the only thing I can think of is they say that this is now the Aquarian age and that it's going to go into more of the female, you know, it was um, all male-dominated for so many right. centuries. Now it's going to be more of the feminine. And so maybe this is like it has to be so bad, like the storm before the calm. You know, it used to be the calm before the storm. Right. But maybe this is why everyone's going crazy right now, because it's got to get so bad that they can sort it out. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that uh, people, um, you know, so the, recently, you know, the economy just failed. But I don't think people really felt it enough to get it. And I don't want everybody to feel it. Believe me, I don't want everybody to suffer in order to get it. On the other hand, uh, you know, until there's until the storm comes, there, there can be no peace, it seems like. And unless we start fighting ignorance, and that's something that you are really working towards. Is that not true? Yes, that is true. Um, I believe very strongly in education. And yes. I'm working very um, closely with our Hollywood High School students that are outstanding young students that need to get help with their scholarships to yeah, go to college. Tell me about that because there's, some, there's, uh, some, there's a sad story there. Well, the story is, is that most of these children, I went to Hollywood High School, it was all white. There might have been a couple of black children. There might have been a few, you know, from other countries. But it was basically white neighborhood kids mm -hmm. all growing up together and going to school. Well, now it's a magnet school, and it brings people from all over the city. And there were like 30 different languages being spoken in Hollywood High School. And so it's a wonderful example that all these different cultures can get along famously because they're all singing and they're dancing and they're, you know, they're all trying to do their best. Mm -hmm. But then I'm on the committee. There are two or three of us that read all of the forms that the children present us that want to have scholarships for college. And I was reading 35 forms. This is last year, and we're about to do it again this year for the next group, and mm -hmm. every single student was so outstanding, and yet their parents were immigrants that had never gotten their citizenship. Almost every one of the children did not have their citizenship, and here they were with parents that maybe were gardeners or, you know, just, just at the lowest income brackets that had no money for anything extra getting stray days, coming to school every day, not missing a day. I mean, that to me just blew me away because right. I must have missed a lot of my high school years. <laughs> and, you know, you can't help but respect them and think, my God, if these kids under this adversity could do so well, help them. And I was really glad when we passed the law in California that we could give people that were not citizens, college educations. And all of my Republican girlfriends wrote me emails about, this is ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. And I do believe that we have a big problem with immigration and people using our public facilities without paying taxes. I agree with that. But if you've mm -hmm. got a child with 
with all the adversities doing so well in high school, we should be rewarding them and helping them educate adults. And then they can do something through the government. They can do things to help the rest of the people. And I must tell you that a lot of people that I know that are immigrants from other countries that are trying to get their citizenships, they resent having to wait for five and six years in an emergency hospital also because of all these people that are paying the taxes to get more staff and everything. But right. With, with that problem set aside, if you do have people that are doing the best they can and, and striving, they should be rewarded. And I'm no, just I agree, so because I think there's all kinds of things we can talk about and do about some of the issues with immigrants. But we're talking about when you're talking about the issues that are pressing us right now, and one of the biggest is, is education. Uh, we have a larger than 50% dropout rate. Uh, ignorance is hurting this country. Um, and so you've got to deal with these things. And you're talking about, um, you're talking about like, uh, the working poor in this country who are a huge cross-section of this country and very important. These are people that are working hard, paying taxes, and they're still not able to make ends meet. And their kids are going to school, like you said, not missing a day. These are, these are people who are participating completely and still having a hard time. And that's just ridiculous. Yes. And all it does is just add a pool of uneducated people out there that can be brainwashed, that can be, you know, led to vote in certain directions where they may not have pulse that. It's really mm -hmm. important to do. Well, California, when I was going to school, California was at the very top of the education. People would always be going to college from high school. Unless they were, you know, drafted and had to go to Vietnam or things like that. But even the city colleges were flourishing. Right. You couldn't afford to go to a university for your first couple of years, or your grades weren't quite that good. And here we've dropped from the top of our educational system down to, like, one of the lowest. And and you, why, you, you think, why? I must tell you that in working over at Hollywood High School, I wouldn't want to be a teacher now. There, it's better now, but let's say in the, I'll say maybe 15 years ago, I felt like I was walking into Blackboard Jungle. You remember that movie? <laughs> yes, that, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is, it was scary because yeah. a lot of the kids were in gangs, and I remember that they were tearing off the door handles and things in the bathrooms, and they were just unruly. Well, because their parents weren't strict with them, so they had to have discipline from the teachers, and the teachers were getting worn down. Right. And it goes back to the parents. They've got to be parents. You know, I could have kept working as a movie star and being in more and more things, but when I had this little baby and I thought, this is a responsibility. If I'm going to bring a child into this life, I have to give it my undivided attention and make this a, a productive human being. Right. And I'm very proud that I have four children, three, two are, um, are uh, lawyers, another one is an inventor, a businessman, and my daughter has been very productive in her business. I make good citizens and mm -hmm. educated people, and we have a responsibility to do that. I would have much rather been going out and being in a movie or singing or being on a television show than staying up all night with a sick baby or doing the diapers and all that. 
in the long run, you know, I look at Linda Evans and Stephanie Powers, who were my room, you know, schoolmates. Mm-hmm. They didn't have children, and they pursued the career, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I was lucky to have both things. I had a career, and I have a wonderful motherhood. Well, I think you, um, that's, that's, first of all, that's commendable by any standard. Um but you, you, I think uh, you did. You stopped doing uh, appearing in the early '90s. Is am I way off? Um, you know, I, I'm, I don't. Look know. at looking at your IMDb. I think the last thing was about 1991. That they, at least the one they list. I don't know if you've done anything since then. No, um, I actually have been writing. I have yes. my and that's what I wanted to get back to because we we touched on your book, Umbrella, and we started to talk, you started to talk about it as you know about uh, children and and t- getting taken advantage of, and we kind of getting taken advantage of. And we kind of went off on a tangent, but I wanted to get back to it because I understand that the story is, um, and I think you touched on it, is also uh, an, an adult read. Yes, it's interesting that people have been reading it all ages. I did a book signing party down in San Diego, up in the Hillcrest area, and they were people from 30 to 50, and they all bought the book and read it before they were going to give it to their godchild or nephew or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And I got the most amazing reviews from it. Because they said, oh, no, this isn't a book for children. This is a book for us, too. But I think it's well, great. Yeah. A book for all ages. Because, you um, know, I'm an, I'm an educator. I'm a teacher. That's my, my – it seems like I'm always trying to help people, and and I wanted to get some messages out. But how do you do it? You have to kind of sometimes camouflage it. And right, an umbrella it. is a fantasy. Right. It is but, a but it talks about life lessons, and uh, I, I understand it. You know, it demonstrates how to believe in oneself and dare to live the dream, their dreams. Exactly. Uh, it's just a few tools of how to make yourself have more confidence in yourself, especially when someone else is tearing it down all the time. You know, they say that if a child gets one bad thing said to them, it takes like a thousand compliments to get over that horrible feeling when you've been berated. That was the, yes, the cookie theory. You wake up in the morning as a kid and you come down to the, the, your mother calls you in her warm voice, 10,000 cookies, uh, down to the breakfast and she made your favorite breakfast of eggs and bacon. That's another 20,000 cookies and she dresses you up all warmly for the cold day and gives you a big kiss on the cheek and says, have a great day. Another 50,000 cookies. And so you're alarmed with hundreds of thousands of cookies. You get on the school bus and somebody says, hey, Dumbo, minus 100,000 cookies. <laughs> I've never heard it that way. I've always heard that when you have a newlywed couple, every time you make love, you put a jelly bean in the, in the, uh, in the bowl. And then uh-huh. by the time you've been married the next year, it takes several years to get the jelly beans out. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I like that. Can I use that? Can I steal that from you? You can say anything you want. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so back. <laughs> we still have freedom of speech to a degree. 
You're writing a few books. Amarella is the one that you have out now. I know you're working on a few books. Um, I I wanted to get back to Amarella real quick because one of the things is um, you talk about the the laws of the universe. Are you talking about things like uh, the secret? Uh, What what laws are you speaking of? There are certain laws in the universe that are constants. Right. And it, it really goes into energy. For instance, the Dalai Lama says, if you visualize something a thousand times, it will be attracted to you. Right. The everything, law of comes, everything comes from your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And as you think about it and present it in your mind of what you want it to be, how it wants, you want it to happen, how you want it to look, how you want it to affect you, you can visualize something happening, and then the laws of attraction have to be manifested because what we make in our brain is what we are living in reality. Mm-hmm. And it is true, the more that you can keep yourself focused on what you want and what you um, what you can create, Mm-hmm. And even if you're in the worst circumstances, you can do certain things to protect yourself. And I believe that it's really important that children understand things that aren't being taught to them anymore. And it's just it's just simple. Physics no, it is, it is simple. And it, I think that when kids, you know, if, if we're if we're leading by example, we're we're, we're we're teaching the wrong examples to our kids many, many times, and the law of uh, attraction is one of is, is a basic law that we all need to know about because it's not it's not mystical, Carol. It's not a mystical thing. It's uh, whatever you focus on expands, and it does because that's what you're focusing on. That's what you're thinking about. That's what you're putting action into, and so you're going to move ahead in that direction. That's just it's not crazy mystical fairyland dust stuff. It's just how. It's like when you drop it, take pick of an apple and you drop it, gravity's always going to make it fall to the ground. That's just the way it is. Exactly. And I think that we too often we teach our kids to focus on what's wrong with life and how screwed up our lives are because that's what they see their parents doing, saying, oh, this sucks and that sucks and this sucks and she's bad and she's no good and that's no good. And, wow, we get thousands of hours of that in our head. And what, what chance do we have of ever living our dream? Exactly. I mean, I try every day to remember. I mean, I just, I just looked out the window and I had my eyes LASIK surgery about mm-hmm. 15 years ago. And just yeah. to be able to look out the window, I, I could never see stars growing up because I was so blind. Just to look out and see trees and leaves and, and appreciate now that I have eyesight again. Even with glasses, it was rather distorted because of my stigmatism. I thank God every day, and I bless that doctor, and I call him and send his wife emails all the time telling them how much I appreciate them, even now, 15 years later. And my daughter does the same thing. There is always something to thank God about. I mean, just getting up in the morning and being able to walk is a big one when you've had problems like my daughter has had and that I've had with um, yeah, Could you tell me about that? I, I love your attitude of gratitude, and, and this is a great story about 
about that because you are thankful about what you uh, about your daughter. But she had, um, I mean, you have a totally. great family, but she had a condition that happened to her, right? That scared the heck out of you. Oh yes. You know, this is why it's. I know there's the God or whatever you want to call it because sure. there is a divine plan for each of us if we just tap into what it is. And I started working with handicapped children. Well, all through my life, but, but with this charity that was connected with USC School of Medicine. And it was to help crippled children, people that were young athletes that maybe dove into the water and it was shallow and they broke their neck or mm. horrible car accidents or just children, you know, born with some of these things. So I worked with them and was down at the hospitals every month and raising money for them and doing this because I just had empathy for them. Mm -hmm. But then after I was grown and I had my children and I would take them with me sometimes to the parties that we would give the little kids. And, you know, we made an impact. We, we figured out how to give them voice-activated technology that helped them be able to be in wheelchairs instead of just in the bed all day and all these things. And I kept right. blessing God and thanking God that my children were healthy. You know, I had three boys that were just constantly doing sports and healthy as can be. And then my little girl was a gymnast and a dancer and everything. When she reached about 12, we saw that her her um, her um, hemline was you know, crooked, and she was going into scoliosis, and it was getting quite severe. And eventually, when she was 13, she had to have major, major surgery. And, I mean, this was a life-changing experience for all of us because mm -hmm. we had to teach her how to walk all over again, keep her, you know, at home with me. And it just made me thank God that I had been working and giving to these children into this medical facility for so many years that I knew the best person to go to for advice. If she'd had a brain tumor, I wouldn't have known to call. But here, you know, orthopedic surgery was the main thing that they were involved in at Rancho Los Amigos and USC School of Medicine. And so here I knew the people to get the best advice. Well, that wasn't a coincidence. That had to be a divine intervention to... That's why I say sometimes I get the question before, I mean, the answer before the question. If you mm -hmm. just follow your instincts and do the things that you feel is right, trying never to harm others and just be good, you're rewarded. And I was rewarded in that way. I mean, it's been a horrible, painful experience for her for the rest of her life. It never right. did take pain away, but at least it stopped her spine into growing into her lungs and heart. So she's alive, you know. Right. Wow. And she's a wonderful girl, by the way. But I think the whole thing is people need to have more empathy, and they have to constructively say and make this a better solution instead of just complaining. Right. You know, when you say stuff like that, I think of, you know, I don't know if you've read Eckhart Tolle in The Power of Now, but uh, people becoming more aware and the paradigm changing into awareness as opposed to being all stuck in our heads, but getting out of ourselves and getting empathy for others is hopefully a shift that will continue to occur. Oh, I know. I know you know, we were speaking about um, being um, gay, some of the actors, 
I just can't believe the way they used to treat people that were gay, and still do. And mm-hmm. I know my my husband has a a cousin who is gay, and they gave him shock treatment. This is, you know, 50 years ago, they were giving him shock treatments to change him and make him normal again. Right. Better than that he was born that way. I mean, it, it's so sad the way people have treated gay people, people that are born with, you know, maybe their arm, the thalamine kind of thing where the arms are shriveled up. All of those adversities that people had to challenge themselves with and the lack of empathy is just it's shocking to me. Yes. Again, I think a, a lot of it is uh, that's why education is so important because a lot of it, com- ignorance uh, spawns fear, and fear spawns, um, you know, exactly what we're talking about. In other words, if something's different than you, you fear it, and thus you have to do one of two things, run away or make fun of it. <laughs> well, my father was a doctor, and he moved away from Louisiana because he was running for coroner when a black man was hit by a car outside his doctor's office, so he went out to help him. And one of the people in the city council or something saw him taking care of this this um, man that had been run over, mm-hmm. and they told him later that now that he was running for coroner, he could not help black people. He had uh-huh. to only work with white people. <laughs> and my father looked at him and said, I took the oath that I would help everyone. You can't tell me who to, you know, take care of or not. And he left Louisiana and moved to California because of the okay, you grew up in. Were you born in Shreveport? Did you grow up there? I was born in Shreveport. I grew up. Well, I only stayed there like till I was four or three. Oh, okay. Um, I was in Reston, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. But then we moved to California. So I've been here all my life. Okay. And thank God, because I would go crazy living in places where there were such bigots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I lived in New Orleans for three years. It's a, it's a, it's, you've got to kind of... You got to take it coming and going, <clears throat> you know. Um, well, you know, my aunt, who's dead now, but her husband was one of the biggest Democratic leaders of the South, and he he was like chairman of five of the states, and you know, he was the old guard. And she used to tell me when I was in high school, we'd go back to Louisiana and we'd go up to this lake with that boat, boathouse, and everything at this lake. That gardener took eat you. And I mean, oh her, yeah, this is how I remember when I saw The Help, the movie The Help. Right. It just took me right back to whenever I'd go back and visit my kinfolks down south. Everybody <laughs> hated black people because they were afraid. They were just afraid of them. Yeah, well, even if they weren't afraid of them, they were afraid of their peers. I remember going, a friend of mine was a, a black guy, and we, I was in the Navy. I was down in Pascagoula, Pascagoula, Mississippi, and we went to a one of the big bars down there where everybody hung out, and we started to walk in the door, and he said, sorry, your friend can't come in. And I said, what, are you kidding me? I'm from California. I don't get this, the whole thing. And he goes, well, you know, he's not, he's not white. And I said, oh, that's ridiculous. It's not the 60s or 50s anymore. It's like... It's like you know, um, and I tried to fight the guy at the door. Of course, my friend's saying, please, please shut up and let's go. And finally the guy tells me, fine, he's allowed in. 
you're responsible for him. He can come in, uh, but I'm not responsible for what happens. And my friend just tell, now grabbing me by the arm and dragging me away, going, shut up, let's get out of here. And I just, because I didn't understand the whole thing. I saw that when we would go through and have to spend the night. And here my father had six children, and then we had our black cook mm-hmm. from Louisiana, and he was going to go with us, too, to see his family in the same hotel. And sometimes we could even eat in the same room. To meet my father, so furious. Oh my gosh! I mean, it, that was going on, and I was in. Oh, was it Arkansas? Where did they have that that first big school riot where they did the busing? Was that in um, Texarkana or somewhere like that? Mm-hmm. I was there the summer before it all erupted, before you know King started marching and everything. Right. Then. It's just like when I was in Beirut, they were keeping all the Palestinians in these in these fenced-in, maybe ten blocks of fenced-in, no running water areas, just like prisons. And of course they're going to rebel. Of course they're going to make a big, you know, fight and get free. People are not for the deal to be kept down like that. They're humans. They're not just cows. Listen, I you know we could talk talk all day, and I would really like to go on another hour because I, you know there's so many other questions I have, but um, it's coming up to the it's coming up to the hour, and um, so what I want to do is there's a couple things. First of all, the name Doheny. Could you tell me in, in California there's Doheny a Boulevard or street? It's a it's a well known street in in Beverly Hills and and Hollywood. Um, can you tell me what your connection is to Doheny? Yeah. Oh, company, you know, in, in California. And I'm sorry, say that again. I, I didn't hear you. The first Doheny, E.L. Doheny, was the first man to just... Anyway, he had a son. That was E.L. Doheny, too, mm-hmm. who, was, who was shot and murdered in the uh, Doheny Mansion. At that time, he had five children, and so his first son was E.L. Doheny III. And then his son was E.L. Doheny IV, and that's who I was married to. Oh, okay. So my son carries the family name, E.L. Doheny V. Uh, Can I be speaking about, speaking of Doheny, because, you know, we... The family built the Doheny Library at USC, and the Los Angeles Book Fair is going to be at USC on April 21st and 22nd, and I'm going to be there on April 22nd in the Author House booth giving away my book and signing it. Oh, wonderful. So if you could tell that to your readers and to your people that would love for them to come find and say hello and I'll give them a free book. Okay. I'm trying to get my book out for as many people to read and I'm going to be donating it to schools and some homes that are like the rape treatment center and things like that to so the children get to read it. But it's, Okay, it's so that brings us to the next place and that is um, especially these organizations that would like to get in touch with you or others that would like to get in touch with you for whatever reason, or, to, or, to, or let's talk about where we can also find your book. Where can we first get a hold of you? 
Um, well, if you go to carolwells.com, that's my website. Carol, that's C-A-R-O-L-E. Yes, I have an E. I was named after Carol Lombard. <laughs> <laughs> Carol with an E, and it's carolwells.com. And if you go on the charity page or I'm not sure, maybe it's products or something. I put Amberella up, and um, I'm also put a new product up called the Beamer that I'm very interested in people knowing about. Yeah, I saw about. that magnetic therapy. Oh, this is a new way of wave of medicine. It's just amazing. That's another show for us to do. <laughs> there you go. It's really on how to help people and what's going on. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, then um, if they want to buy it, it's on Amazon.com. My book is on Barnes & Noble. It's also on Author House, who's selling it for a lot less than Amazon. So if they right. want to buy it and not spend as much money. So that's AuthorHouse.com. Yes. Right. They can save a couple of dollars. Oh, they can save like $10. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's huge right there. Well, I'll put this, I'll put Author House on your page so they can find it easy. Okay, and um, I don't know if I have on my website my email address, but if somebody needs information, they can look up there, and then they can contact me on email. And I'm on Facebook. Wonderful. I'm starting a Facebook page for Amberella, so that will be good, too, so I can put all of my book party pictures. What? I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I cut you off. I was just so going to say you that you're talking about Facebook. Yeah, I'm, start, I'm starting an Amberella page on Facebook so I can have, when I have the book parties, I can have everybody's pictures put up and everything. Oh, wonderful. Well, you're jumping right into social media, aren't you? I wish I knew more about it. Maybe when you get off the phone, maybe tomorrow and the next day, you can tell me more how to utilize it because it's, you know, such a wonderful new media that right. I was Yeah, we got to get you on Twitter. Oh, I'm afraid to get on Twitter because sometimes I say things that are just so truthful that people can't handle it. Uh, yeah, and you can't take it back. <laughs> Especially as, as if certain I've politicians a, have found out. And if I have a cup of a glass of wine before I go to sleep at night and I start twittering, I'll be in big trouble. Because <laughs> I'm really feel I don't. Oh, want to do I hear you. I hear you. It's no better I, for me. It's better to blog. What I do is I'll blog because I take a little more time at what I say, and then can I use you, Twitter to get the blog out. Can you edit your blogs? You can absolutely. You can take. You can. You can actually write it and send it um, and tell it to send a month from now, or you can write it over days and days and days and days and put pictures in and do whatever you want to it, and then just use Twitter to let everybody know that it's finished and, and post it. I'll have to learn how to do that one. Yeah. It's just, I'm already so busy because I'm writing this other book now called Doheny Drive. So you know, from that book. And I know you're uh-huh. up late at night. Because <laughs> <laughs> you answered my email quite late. I don't sleep very much, and I wish I did, but I don't. Mm, that's I good, though. You're, you're a thinker. You, you pace yeah. the house at night thinking and writing and... Okay. Oh, yeah. When I'm really writing, when I'm really in the midst of writing, I'll stand up and I start ranging, rearranging furniture. <laughs> <laughs> People do the strangest things. And oh, my gosh. 
Well, you know, um, you talk about the, the secret. One of my friends is uh, Marie Diamond, and I did an interview with her. She's the feng shui expert, and I think she does the same thing, <laughs> always adjusting the furniture. Well, I think that's great. I wish let, that me, I let me ask you, because um, we have to go, and I so want to thank you. Let me, from the bottom of my heart, Carol, uh, it was one of the more interesting interviews I've ever done, mainly because I, uh, you're, you're such a, a one, not because of all the wonderful things you've done, and you've done wonderful things, but because of the person that you've been on the interview. You're just so open and uh, so easy to talk to. And, of course, it, you know, it's just icing on the cake that you have all these incredibly wonderful stories to tell um, and that you're such a, uh, you know, you're so philanthropic and that you're out there helping so many people. We thank you for all you do there. Um, but I'd like to let you finish off here. Do you have a parting word for everybody, uh, uh, you know, something you can just, something you'd like to say that you haven't said? I would just suggest that everybody, when they brush their teeth in the morning or when they're shaving or combing their hair in the morning, looking in the mirror, compliment themselves. Say something kind that they did the day before. Recognize your good things. You know, maybe somebody helped a lady off the street walk across the street or maybe you called somebody who was sick or maybe you just, you know, did a, a kindness for someone that was not ever even recognized. Compliment yourself. Tell yourself how special you are. Look yourself in the eyes. Look in the mirror and say, you are important and you've done some very good things in your life and I'm proud of you. We need to reinforce our own selves of how special we are. Well, thank you very much. This is J.W. Nigerian, and we've been speaking with actress Carol Wells. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you, and, and it was a real pleasure to speak with you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to JW on Purpose with JW Nigerian. You can find JW on Purpose at jwonpurpose.com. JW on Purpose is the property and is a trademark of Meta Media Group, and this audio is copyright 2011, and all rights are reserved.